It certainly is an opportunity for us to appreciate this evening, to be able to come together like this, when so many other things can often cloud and make things as difficult as they are in other parts of the world. And yet, this evening, in the serenity and the tranquility of the hour, we can close this Lord's Day by giving attention to honoring and reverencing and worshiping the God of heaven, and certainly, hopefully, to make things a brighter day for us as well as the week ahead. Tonight, as you may have noted in the bulletin, the lesson will be entitled Vision and Trust, and we shall, in fact, look somewhat more intently at some of the episodes found in the 14th chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew. And so it is to that location I would invite your attention as we look at a few interesting things. As we begin that, consider these introductory thoughts, if you would, with me. As surely as the title involves two things, I mentioned vision on the one hand and trust on the other, I would submit that we can find both of those things present and in fact encouraged upon us as we look at one of the episodes from the life of the Apostle Peter. That gentleman who seemed so often to be impetuous and aggressive and who on other occasions in fact found himself in trouble due partly to those same attributes and qualities. But as we look interestingly at this scene before us tonight from Matthew 14, maybe we too can be reminded of how important vision is and also how needful trust is when rightly placed and when properly positioned. In fact, it would be my hope that we might revisit a bit about the character of the nature of these things as well as to see the practical import that they have for each and every one of us. May I suggest that we first of all then look at the episode itself, trying to firmly appreciate the actual scene as it's described to us, and then we'll only thereafter seek to understand some of the lessons that might be extracted from it. The scene is really a rather familiar one, I suspect, but it is to that 14th chapter I would invite your attention. It was an extremely busy day for the Lord and His disciples. In fact, as you will notice over the next few moments as we unfold just a few of the events, no doubt, of that day, we shall find that they themselves were extremely busy, no doubt rather stressed, in fact, and yet through it all, we find a pers perspective of both trust and vision as it appears for us. In the busyness of that day, we notice it began rather dismally. For isn't it true that our Savior received word early that day, it would seem, that that good friend of his and that forerunner of his, John the Baptist, had been put to death. Had, having been beheaded by that gentleman named Herod, or at least he gave that order, and in fact John's life was taken from him, stricken from his body by the evil dictates and decrees of that king who in fact had been rebuked by John the Baptist because of the marriage in which he was then living. But as we notice, that day beginning in that kind of fashion, certainly not as ideally as one would enjoy the positive character of other things, we notice that the busyness of it was only beginning. For notice what we might appreciate next. It seems that even Jesus understood that there was a need. There was, in fact, an important need for a degree of restfulness, an opportunity to take in some food, and He and the disciples thus proceeded to go to what the Scriptures call a desert place. And we are reminded in Mark's account of this series of events that they would there be such that they had not before had the leisure to even eat. Now, hopefully that could take place. However, the multitude that had already begun to appreciate the increasing popularity of Jesus, what He could offer to them, some of them, the text tells us, outwent them. 
It would seem that some of them, in fact, arrived at the location, at the destination, before even the disciples and the Lord himself. Upon arriving, Jesus had compassion upon these individuals. In fact, all four of the gospel accounts describe for us a man, namely the Christ, who had a tender heart of compassion and concern for them. For as the day was wearing onward, Jesus understood they too had need of some vittles, as one of the translations calls it. It was on this occasion that Jesus took five loaves and two fishes and fed all of them. That group consisting of 5,000 men or thereabouts, not counting the children and women, and the Lord fed all of them. And in that miraculous and marvelous fashion, satisfied their physical needs, but he also understood and pointed out the fact that they were a sheep not having a shepherd. They were in need of some other kind of guidance as well. And so it was that the Savior instructed, he guided, he taught. And might we notice as the day goes onward, notice what else transpired. After feeding this multitude, Jesus in fact instructed his disciples to proceed across the Sea of Galilee and as he gave that instruction to them, he was going to, in fact, dismiss the multitude that he had just fed and send them also away. As the disciples thus proceeded across the Sea of Galilee, we notice that Jesus did something different. He didn't immediately follow them or proceed to them. Rather, after dismissing the multitude, our Savior went into a mountain alone to pray. Jesus, too, found this a convenient and perhaps needful opportunity to go one-on-one -on -one to his heavenly Father, to perhaps express the burdens that were weighing upon his mind, to prepare himself for the greatness of what lay ahead, to, in fact, appreciate the need for strength that only the Father in heaven could provide him. As the Savior had gone into that mountain to pray, we noticed the disciples were struggling in fact, it might well be that's an understatement. For as they were struggling on the Sea of Galilee, we are reminded that the winds had become a bit boisterous. We are reminded that the waves had become such that it was tossing somewhat that ship in which they were. Here were these disciples. Notice that, of course, many of them were fishermen, so they had some familiarity with the Sea of Galilee. But in terms of being experienced mariners, perhaps ready to take care of the onslaught of a storm or at least a time of difficulty on the sea. It nonetheless brought fear to them. It brought a great degree of, shall we say, discomfort. And as you'll notice near the bottom of that slide, we now find that in the wee hours of the morning, in the fourth watch of the night, the sacred scriptures tell us, our Savior proceeded to walk on the water as Jesus has now walked to them, we are now sometime between 3 a.m. And, and the morning or the dawn of the day. Needless to say, our Savior had had very little sleep that night, hadn't he? After feeding the multitude, devoting time in prayer, the characteristics of the other events that had come his way, he now is walking on the sea, coming to these disciples. But Mark's account quickly informs us he would have passed them by. However, they spotted something on that water. They didn't know certainly what it was. They thought it was a spirit. One of the translations affirms it a ghost. They became even more fearful. These men were beside themselves in fear. In fact, we were even told again in one of the translations, they cried out. 
in terms of the fear that now engulfed them, here it was. Imagine the pitch black character of that morning. We can well imagine that if there were these winds and waves like that, likely there was no full moon visible through the clouds that likely were present. In the darkness of that morning, we find them spotting this apparition, this figure of a being walking on the water. In the nature of that fearfulness, you'll notice that the trouble with which they are described in the Matthew's account leads us to notice this. May I direct your attention to just a few of their remarks given the fear that had engulfed them. We notice especially in verse number 26, when, they, when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit, and they cried out for fear. These disciples, appreciating something was there, cried out for fear. As you notice what in fact proceeded next, that'll take us to our next slide. And as it does, may we appreciate next what the Savior does. For notice here, Jesus responds to them in that text that Brother Jeremy read for us earlier. In verse number 27, straightway Jesus spake. That word straightway means immediately. The Lord didn't wait any long amount of time to in fact respond. It says straightway, verse 27, Jesus spake unto them, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. The Lord sought to calm their fears. He sought to identify who it was. It is I, he said. Be not afraid. Furthermore, we notice in the verses that followed, it was Peter who in that typical aggressive and bold way first responded. And might we notice that Peter on that occasion said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. Here was Peter now in this interesting position taking the lead to respond. It was he who said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. Jesus simply responded with one word, come. A four-letter word, the Lord thus asserted, issued, guided, directed, pleaded, made opportunity available to Peter, come indeed. In the verses that follow, we well recall that in verse 29, Peter walked on the water, the text tells us. However, in verse number 30, he saw the wind boisterous and he was afraid, the text tells us. And in so doing, it says, he began to sink. And it was on that occasion he cried, Lord, save me. With the nature here of Peter sinking before him, Jesus extended the opportunity to save. And in verse 31, it says, and immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and called him and said unto him, O thou of little faith... Wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. What an amazing sequence of events. To understand and to think about what it was that we've just read about, how these matters unfolded, the fullness of this day, and now what Peter has had the opportunity to experience. I might invite us to reflect, if we might, for the remainder of the evening upon Peter especially, what it was that he said, what it was that he experienced, and how that might be useful for us as we think about our journey also with the Master. In order to begin that series of thoughts, let's cast it in the form of a few observations, the first of which is this one. 
earlier, as we well noted, in verses 25 and 26, it says that the disciples were fearful. It makes careful note of identifying those aboard that ship, those disciples whom the Lord had given orders to make their way across the Sea of Galilee. It was that very group, and Peter was amongst it, that was in fact fearful. Might we at least contemplate a bit about our life in the flesh? It certainly is no revelation for each of us to understand that there are those circumstances and situations in life that are fraught with fear. There can certainly be times of uncertainty, times, in fact, that bring upon it not only discomfort, but perhaps even anxiety and fear. I suspect each of us, if we live long enough, will have many occasions like that in which we are afflicted with the uncertainty before us, not knowing how it shall turn out, not knowing in fullness and able to write the equations to describe it, that's just not available to us. When those times of fear approach us, how should we respond? What might be some things that we could well understand? I've listed some passages for each of us to give some consideration to. There are many occasions, such as Jonah 1 verse number 5, again in the Old Testament, in which there those mariners also found themselves greatly afraid. These now were not on the Sea of Galilee, but rather the Mediterranean Sea. We notice Jonah was now aboard this boat, and God brought that great storm against it because Jonah was fleeing from the command that God had given him. Those mariners attempted at great length to bring that boat to safety, but they were unable to do so and unsuccessful in the effort. Finally, when they cast the lots, it landed on Jonah and they threw him overboard in the hope of what he had told them that calmness would prevail. But might we never forget how fearful those mariners were. Though experienced they were, they came upon a situation they were unable to handle. Notice also another example in 1 Samuel 17, 11. Here the children of Israel are overcome with fear. Why? Because there was an army named the Philistines straight ahead of them on the other side of the valley, and they had a warrior named Goliath. Far greater than any of them in terms of his stature, far greater than any of them in terms of what they perceived him able to do. However, all along they never understood that the one with them was greater than the one with Goliath. And it was little David who simply took a single stone and whirled it just right by the direction and providence of the God of heaven and felled the giant in only one shot. Notice that the fear that had engulfed the Philistines, or rather the Israelites, was difficult for David to understand. In fact, didn't he ask Saul and the others, Why are you delaying? Let us go up at once, for God is with us. Notice yet perhaps one more example in Acts chapter 5 where fear engulfed the church on that occasion. Here Ananias had just been stricken dead. Peter had in fact rebuked him for lying. He had lied in fact to the Holy Spirit. He had lied to the great God of heaven. And might we well remember that it was the case that the Lord struck him dead. And the text tells us that fear came upon all the congregation. Thus, we should understand fear is something that we might well understand that we shall face. 
As we do so, all these examples have told us there is a way to properly deal with it, a way not to allow it to overcome us and bring us to a nervous breakdown, not to bring us to the point of losing our faith, but rather hopefully to a point in which we can understand the great conquering force that is able to bring us, not only through it, but to bring us to a better position beyond it. One of the last thoughts I thought it would be well for us to understand concerning that is perhaps that more common activity in which we are asked or we find the need on occasion to defend the character of the Christ, something to do with the Holy Scriptures. We've each, I suspect, been in positions of great nervousness, haven't we? When perhaps in a given situation, the Scriptures, the God of heaven, His Son, the Christ, are under attack to the point where, in fact, it seems that victory is impossible. There are those in our presence who have little, if any, interest in those matters, and they are besmirching the character of the Holy Scriptures. Nervousness can well prevail within us. Might I note that God, I suspect, has provided us with the attribute of nervousness for a good reason. It helps keep us upon our toes. It helps us to know that that which is ahead of us and that which is before us is worthy of serious attention and it's worthy of serious intent. When you and I are called upon to defend the Scriptures in that way or to speak before an audience in light of the things of truth, nervousness is not at all a bad thing. Anyone who has preached or taught a Bible class knows about nervousness. It is a weighty responsibility but it's one that any man should appreciate the opportunity that to let that nervousness lead to a proper understanding of how important and how significant and how vital that activity is. Perhaps any of us then could understand that whereas fear was present here, we might well wonder what comes next. What happened with these disciples in this degree of fearfulness? With regard to Peter... After the Lord, and after he understood the Lord's statement, it is I, be not afraid. Peter suddenly became confident. What had been fearful just a few moments before had now become confidence. Notice it was he who said, If it be thou, bid me come unto thee. Peter now was nothing like the gentleman it seemed just a few moments earlier. Now the presence of the Lord had brought confidence, reliability, and assurance, and it had brought also a degree of comfort. No longer was there the fearfulness of this apparition, this ghost, this other matter, whatever it could have been. It was now replaced, wasn't it, with confidence. May I ask each of us then to think about those situations we described earlier. Might we, based upon the deliverance and revelation of God, to be bold in our assertion for truth, to have the opportunity to speak certainly with correctness and also with a degree of care, but also with some degree of boldness. How many of the New Testament figures and preachers and characters and faithful saints were in fact those that were described as bold? Some of the verses that we might well give consideration to could start in the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 3, though at first reluctant, was Moses in this accepting of the charge and commission to lead forth Israel out of Egyptian bondage? That same man, not many chapters later, was well noted to be bold. He was noted to appear before Pharaoh with courage, with bravery, and with strength. Could it be that he came to realize God's words, I will be with you? 
And might we also appreciate the thoroughness of that thought. For isn't it true, if God be for us, who can be against us? Romans 8.31 And wasn't it true that Jesus to those very disciples had earlier stated, or in fact would later state to them in Matthew 28, I'll be with you always, even unto the end of the world. Those kinds of thoughts perhaps challenge us to again ponder ourselves. Am I timid sometimes when I really have no need to be? Do I find myself unwilling to speak or to defend the things of God because I'm too fearful when in fact perhaps I should clothe myself with a boldness that God makes available to me? Maybe we each have been there too often. Wasn't it true that Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.13, I believed, therefore I have spoken. Because of Paul's belief, he spoke. That charged and challenged and directed and led him in the boldness and courageousness of the moment to share forth the goodness of the message of the gospel. No wonder he affirmed, Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9 verse 16. As you think about some of the matters near the bottom of that slide, I suspect that many of us can identify with this transition in life. Was there a time that you really had great fear of speaking before an audience? And perhaps to the men, I especially address that question. But after doing it a few times, you realize what was able to be brought to bear through you, not because it was of your own volition, but because the Holy Spirit was able by virtue of the Scriptures and the power of the Christ to speak words that were encouraging to others, that were true by virtue of the Scriptures, and that in fact carried out the work of God. I can well think about myself, in fact, in light of that. Somewhat, now many, many years back, turning back the clock somewhat over 20 years, and to think about how nervous and how frightened it was to stand before an audience and even think about preaching. Having sat at the feet of so many men through the years and seemingly looked at the easy way that they could deliver in such profoundness the truths of God, how they could extol it in such a way that it was so easy to appreciate and understand, and how that they could draw points and touch the lives with the Word of God using the things contained therein. And then to think about myself even attempting it, I suspect anything that has ever been accomplished by virtue of myself has simply been the operation of God and His Son through me. Any of us, I suspect, who've taught Bible classes, even the ladies who have taught others in the ways God allows you to do, those things have all been the working of God, isn't it? Even Paul, in fact, took not the credit to himself. He said, I am the least of all saints, he affirmed in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9 and 10. And he said it was the power of God working through him. That's the same for each of us. And thus, the confidence that God allows us is not based upon yours and my frailties and our sins. It's based on the greatness of His Son that you and I profess to know and that we profess to follow. It is that confidence that makes it all worthwhile, isn't it? And it does allow us to overcome the fear that can so easily beset our way. Listen to some of these verses that encourage us to be confident and to be bold. We might well begin with that statement that Paul made to his own son in the faith, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 1 verse 7. He said, God has not given us a spirit of timidity. He has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of a sound mind. 
in Hebrews 4, verse 16, near the close of that chapter. In fact, in its closing verse, it was there the Hebrew writer said, Let us come boldly into the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in every time of need. Notice that there encourages us to be bold in beseeching God for assistance, that we might be able to approach those matters that come our way. Perhaps nextly, might we understand the closing chapter to the Hebrew letter. In Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6, He there wrote for us these unforgettable words. He said, I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee. Thus, if the Christ is with us, and the power of heaven is at our disposal, ought not we, in confidence, be able to attempt to respond to the things that are before us, and to do so with all the character and loveliness of the Scriptures? Perhaps finally we might notice in Psalm 56, 11, there again near the close of that chapter, the psalmist said, In God have I put my trust. I will not be afraid what man can do unto me. That challenge not only was true for David, but it's also ever-present and ever a challenge for you and me today. With, we, with what we have seen in Peter's fearfulness now becoming confidence, might we invite ourselves to ask what came next? What else can we say about Peter? It goes without saying Peter did walk on the water, didn't he? And that's worthy of a few moments of reflection and thought by its own nature. For after all, how many human beings have ever done that? It might be at this point that we could well address one of the questions that the infidels have long since asked. As they set before us this scene, they are quick to say, but a human being can't walk on water. There is no force to hold the person up. For that reason, there have been those who directly have asserted, well, both Jesus and Peter had to have been walking on a sandbar. They couldn't have been walking on water. To that we say, let's ask some questions. First of all, when it says Peter sank, if he were standing on a sandbar, what need would there have been? How could he have sunk? And doesn't it also say very clearly the preposition on is present three times? It did not say they were walking in the water. Jesus and Peter alike were walking on the water. And that's in fact what Peter asked. It was Peter who said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come to thee on the water. This was a miracle. Indeed, as Jesus and here Peter walking on water. Certainly we understand that that law of gravity was set aside here by the great power of the Christ that was present. And as we understand what took place, Peter walked on water. As he did that, might we note a few things that took place as he did so. I've listed those for you in the following set of ideas. Notice that this wasn't the Lord's initial suggestion. When Jesus, in fact, was seen by them, and when Jesus said, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. It was Peter who first said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. This was Peter's suggestion. It was Peter's idea. The Lord, of course, knew all along that such was entirely possible by the greatness of God's power. And thus he said, come. Pause with just a moment and notice with me, though, what had to be passing through the mind of Peter. And put yourself in that same position. He had to step out of that boat. Here was a man standing on the water. 
He, however, was in the safety and in the confines of that floatable object, that boat, and yet he had to have enough courage to step out of it. Would you and I have had that much courage? Would we have had that much confidence in the man standing before me to step out on that water? Peter did. Though he was certainly a man who made more than one mistake, and he would be the first to admit it. Still, there are times like this that impress us with his confidence and his trust in the Savior whom he professed to believe. He stepped out of that boat. Might I challenge each of us then, during those times of fear, when that has become a degree of confidence, maybe that's the time we should then take it upon ourselves to act and light off what God has commanded. Maybe it's time we stand before that audience and lead that prayer. Or perhaps it's time to help wait on the table when I ask. Or it's time, in fact, to step out there and let God use our talents, just like He did Peter. This man, of course, later would preach the first gospel sermon. This man later would, in fact, preach to Cornelius. This man would be a critical element in the church in the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts. He was its central figure, at least on earth. But he was always centered around his Savior. His boldness, his aggressiveness thus came to great fruition as it brought forth good labors for the cause of God. Can we not appreciate then even this evening as we ask? Peter saw no limitation to being near his master. Walking on water, he understood that he could do it if Jesus was there. What about my life and what about yours? What hinders me? Am I nervous about something? Is something clouding and bothering me to the point that I'm allowing it to stop me from serving Christ the way He would have me to? If that's the case of my life, might I quickly say, like Peter, I need to set it aside. I need to see no limits with respect to Christ. He can help me to overcome anything that's in my path. He's promised it. Peter, thus, in his activity here, challenges each of us to do the same. For isn't it true of the great confidence that he can instill within us? And you'll notice that the encouragement that I have placed there to set those hindrances aside, they are described in a number of places. Listen to some words like these. In Hebrews 12, beginning in verse number 1, we find there following that beautiful listing of the faithful ones, the heroes of faith of chapter 11, we read, Wherefore? Seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Notice in verse number 1 of that passage, we're in fact instructed, lay aside every weight and the sin that might well accompany it. Every weight, every obstacle, every hindrance you and I are able to set aside and always look unto Jesus, <clears throat> the author and the finisher of our faith. Peter set aside for that initial few moments all the difficulties about him, the nature of the storm, the water, the waves, the wind, all of it, focusing only upon the Christ. And he walked on the water when he did. But now might we notice perhaps one other text along that same line in Luke 9, 23, 
where there in his preaching ministry, even the Savior saying, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. There are three things that are stated, isn't there? If we desire to follow him, to come after him, we first deny self. Notice we take up our cross daily and we also follow him. All of those things tell us that that fear that can become confidence leads or should lead to our activity in light of that confidence that we then have. After all, had Peter been confident but never stepped out of the boat, he would never have walked on the water. He had to step out of the boat in order to walk on that sea, in order to walk and reach the place closer to the Savior whom he loved. That does bring us to a fourth lesson as well, a fourth observation. It is that idea, of course, that Peter did begin to sink when he took his eyes and his set of confidence off the Master. Notice with me again if you'll read verses, verse number 30. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. It would seem that as long as Peter was fixated upon the Master, and as long as he remained focused upon him, his trust well-seated and well-set, he in fact was walking on that water, and everything about him simply melded in to that which was unimportant. But now when he began to realize where he was, he was walking on water, the sea was whipping about him, and the wind was boisterous. We now so quickly see he began to sink. And yet notice Jesus immediately stretched forth his hand. Jesus was still there even when he began to sink, and can't we use that as a lesson for ourselves? During the concourse of this life, when we take our eyes off the Master and proceed to tread our own way and follow our own path, no matter how ingenious we think we might be or how well-skilled we think we are at making our own way, we, like Peter, will sink in despair. For isn't it still true? Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. Jeremiah's famous statement of Jeremiah 10, 23. And didn't the Proverbs writer Solomon echo that same sentiment as we find in the reading of the Proverbs? All of those thoughts challenge us easily to notice the very words of Paul. We used him earlier as an example, and it would seem he fits so well again. He said in 2 Corinthians 3, verse number 5, speaking about sufficiency, he said, Our sufficiency is of God. Peter found his sufficiency in the Christ when he was strong. He began to look elsewhere when he was weak. Friend, it's no different for us today. We will be strong in Christ as long as we will keep our eyes upon the Master. But when we look otherwise and we begin to look elsewhere, we too will be weak. It cannot be any other way. For faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And hence, when we look otherwise in the Word of God, our faith will begin to be weak. And utterly in that weakness, it will finally perhaps disappear altogether. All of those matters lead us to a host of passages there at the bottom of that slide. We've list looked at the first one. Might I ask you to consider with me just a few of the others that follow? Isn't it interesting that the same man who here walked on water, later could say in 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 5, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
He started by pronouncing a greatness on the blessing of the Christ and, of course, on His Father, the God of heaven. And He went on to speak about the character of that home laid up for us in heaven. It's incorruptible, undefiled, it fadeth not away. Here was one who walked on water and could say that. It's clear His hope wasn't in the things of this earth. It was in a place far grander and better than this. Isn't it also interesting, in 2 Peter 3.11, again, this same man would later say, speaking about the nature of that, the greatness of the second coming of Christ and how everyone should be prepared for it, he said, seeing that all of these things be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? All of these matters this evening, I think, have given each of us a challenge to ask ourselves, am I willing to step out of the boat? Am I willing to allow my fear to become confidence as I perform the works and instrumentalities that God has given for me to do? In summary, I think we can conclude much of these in words like this. This was an amazing scene. When you and I think about what it would feel like to walk on water, what kind of experience for Peter that must have been, and what do you suppose those in the boat who were watching this must have thought? Here is the man we know. He shouldn't be able to walk on the water, but look. Look what he's doing. They knew very well that Christ was involved. For notice, when Christ came into the boat, they all began to worship Him in the calmness of that moment. Notice again with me these four lessons that challenge each of us. First of all, we noted the existence of fearfulness. It likely is going to come our way. But we also noted in the spiritual sense how that Christ provides confidence. And He gives us, by virtue of knowledge and the activity based upon it, the opportunity to, in fact, address fear in a way that leads to something positive. We then noticed that Peter walked on water. The greatness of what he accomplished when he, by faith, walked out on what he knew to be the case, the very Son of God before him. May you and I have the confidence to step out and use our talents, our abilities, our skills to bring forth great fruit for the cause of God, Romans 7 verse 4. And finally, we noticed that as wonderful an event for Peter as it was, he did begin to sink. When he took his eyes off Jesus, when he began to look elsewhere, to trust perhaps in himself in light of what was now about him, notice that things got bad. You and I also will find ourselves in a very difficult situation when we take our eyes off the Savior. This very night, what about you and what about me? Are we taking our eyes off of Him? Or perhaps are we in the situation we've never stepped out of the boat yet? May we in confidence then do what we know we need to do. And tonight, if you've never obeyed initially the gospel call of invitation, maybe you're in this very position analogously to what Peter was. You've heard the gospel. You know what the plan of salvation is. You've heard it spoken of in Bible studies and lessons. Perhaps you many times have read it yourself, but you've been too nervous, too afraid, too fearful. Be bold and courageous. Jesus went to the cross for you. You need in just a few moments to walk down this aisle if that's the case in your life. And if you know that you are lost in your condition, come to Christ. Come to Jesus. Let that confidence begin to build in you for a lifetime of service for the one who died for you. If you've become a Christian, 
If you live that way for some time, but now perhaps over the cares, the multitudes, the deceitfulness of times, you've lost that initial energy, that initial fervor and zeal for, for Christ. Maybe you have long since went back into the boat and you're just sitting there. It's time to step again out of that boat to let God use you as a faithful and powerful servant of His. If tonight we can aid you in rededicating your life by praying for your strength, by perhaps praying for forgiveness of sins that are known in a public way, we'd be, in fact, honored to be of assistance in that regard. Tonight, if you need to step out of the boat, if you need to, in fact, make things right with the God of heaven, why not do that even now? Don't delay, but even now, while together we stand and while we sing.